as we know it, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Brad. My name is Kiki, and as always, we are your hosts. And today we have a special co-host with Tom, who's going to uh, discuss with us on the nation of Paraguay. So a few things are in order before we start with our usual familiar- familiarity ratings in history. <laughs> Good one. Um, so we're going to introduce our guest's host, who is Tom. Tom. Why don't you say some things about yourself? Brad Kiki, hyped to be here first off. Naturally. Millions of listeners out there also happy to be here. Uh, I will say the traditional greeting and in the indigenous language of Paraguay is by Ishapa. So I will... Yeah, by Ishapa. By Ishapa. Yeah, that's yeah, what they say. That's what they say. So, yeah, that's a little language lesson to get this kicked off. Well, I'm learning so much already, Kiki. <laughs> All right. Hey, do you want to start with our initial familiarity ratings? or? Let's do it. You go uh, first. I say uh, my familiarity, familiarity rating, uh, pulled a broad there, um, <laughs> with Paraguay, as is with most South American countries, uh, all based in Age of Empires 3. Uh, so really not that much. I know that it was a Spanish colony, and I know that it is a landlocked country in South America, one of only two, the rest have coasts. Okay. And you knew that before research? I did know that. That's impressive. Because I know wow. things about geography, bird. <laughs> All right, but what about your initial familiarity rating? We didn't give us a number. What was your number? Oh, I said one. Oh, I'm also one. Yeah. Well, this is a classic uh, Brad and Kiki move. To- move. Tom, that you might not know, is we mostly don't know anything. No, it's cool. It's cool. I would say before I found myself living there uh, as a Peace Corps volunteer, my familiarity was probably also one. So. And what is it now? I mean, three, four tops. <laughs> I mean, I, I probably more than that. I don't know. Tough to put a number on. Yeah, it. there's no country that we have a full like ten out of ten right. on. Well, at least speaking for myself, maybe Brad does. We've discussed this before. Even a country you've lived in. Or spend a lot of time, and you can't really be perfect because there's people there you don't know about their experiences, all that kind of stuff. That's true. You can't live through all of history, Kiki. I mean, there's some kind of vampire. Well, that has uh, remained remains to be seen. Uh, but let's let's look at the snapshot that I will give this week before we go into the full timeline. Good, good job introducing yourself. Yep, because you weren't going to do it. <laughs> Alright, so Paraguay is a landlocked tropical and sub-com- subtropical country in South America, bordered by Argentina, Bolivia, and Brazil. The etymology of the name um, derives from the river of the same name that travels basically through the middle of the country. Um, because para means sea, and then the suffix gua means native to or coming from, so it might mean coming from the sea, but there's no consensus there. Um, but it, it ties more into the Paraguayan Guarani people, uh, which Tom will talk a little bit more about, and Brad will talk more about, because they know more about it than me at this point. The capital is Asuncion, which means ascension in Catholic religion, probably referring to the ascension of Mary, Mother of Jesus. That won't come up again, probably. It will. It will? Nice. Peace with you, Kiki. And with your spirit, Brad. Uh, population is 7,053,382, according to 2016 census. 104th largest in population. The area is 157 
1,048 square miles, making it the 59th largest country. I'm having a hard time with my, my tongue today. The president is Horacio Cortez, uh, and the vice president, which we would normally mention, uh, her name is Alicia Pucheta, and she is the first female vice president of Paraguay. So I included her because you've got to recognize. The government is a unitary presidential constitutional republic. Uh, Religion, about 90% Catholic, 6.2% Evangelical Protestant, 1.1% other Christian sects, and then 0.6% indigenous religions. Languages are Spanish and Guarani. Uh, The demonyms of someone from Paraguay is called Paraguayan Guarani. The ethnic groups is 95% mestizo or white and 5% other mestizo, in this case meaning mixed race. Uh, And uh, just a fun fact about Paraguay I learned when I was building this snapshot, they are the largest exporter of hydroelectric power in the world. That's cool. That's damn cool, Kiki. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) (laughs) All right, why don't you take us back to antiquity? I would would love to, Kiki. So we're going to start the history of Paraguay with a quote. This is from an, an American author who, um, before he, when, after he said this quote, he actually moved to Paraguay and spent a lot of time there. And he said, uh, Paraguay is a country of prophecy, one of, two, one of two smallest nations in the American continent. It was the first American communistic state and the first uh, American nation to be governed by an absolute dictator. So, nice country of prophecy. Let's get into that a little bit more. So, um, Paraguay in antiquity, you have to focus on the indigenous peoples and the indigenous peoples... Uh, primarily in Paraguay are called the Guarani and um, the history and meaning of the name Guarani is actually subject to dispute. Uh, prior to their encounter with Europeans, the Guarani referred to themselves simply as Aba, Aba, can you help it all Tom? Um, Aba. Aba, okay. Uh, meaning men or people, so just a term for themselves. Um, but the, actually the term Guarani was originally applied by the early Jesuit missionaries um, to refer to natives who had accepted this conversion to Christian religion. Um, it's a total missionary move. It's a total missionary move. TMM. <laughs> um, so they use terms like Cayuya uh, or Kaingua um, to use to refer to the people who had um, refused this conversion. Um, and Cayuya roughly translates as the ones from the jungle. Um, well, the term Cayuya is still sometimes is still sometimes used to refer to the settlements of indigenous peoples who had not well integrated into dominant society. The modern usage of the term Guarani is generally extended to include all people of native origin, regardless of social status. Um, some people indicate that the name Guarani was given by the Spanish as it means warrior, so they referred to peoples um, as like the warriors or war because of all the conflicts therein. And some more, more about the Guarani. So the eastern part of present-day Paraguay is occupied by the Guarani people for at least a millennia before the Spanish colonized the Americas. Uh, this, uh, evidence indicates that these indigenous uh, Americans developed a fairly sophisticated semi-nomadic culture characterized by numerous tribes divided by language who each occupied several independent multi-village communities. I'm going to butcher some names here. Um, some related subgroups to the Guarani are the Guarani, the Cario, the Tape, the Itatine, the Guarajo, Guarajo and the Tupi. Um, and other peoples, and they, they inhabited this immense area stretching from the Guyana Highlands of Brazil to the Rio Uruguay. Uh, the Guarani were surrounded by hostile tribes and they were frequently at war. Um, they have some different uh, aspects about their culture. Some tribes pr- uh, practice polygamy, but they also um, they punish adulterers with death. 
Um, some tribes had a, a cannibalistic reward ritual where they, they ate their most valiant foes, which is interesting because we just did Fiji, and that yeah, came up in true. their culture as well. Um, when we first see Spaniards come into um, the Americas, some of the Guarani hoped that the Spaniards would help lead them in a fight against the Incas, so there was a lot of um, conflict in the Americas before um, colonists arrived. Um, so um, much of the earliest written history of Paraguay comes from the records of the, when Spanish colonization started, and that begins in 1516 uh, with the Juan Diaz de Solis failed expedition to the Rio de la Plata. And on the home voyage after Solis's death, uh, one of his vessels wrecked off Santa Cantarina Island near the Brazilian coasts. Uh, one of these survivors was Alexio Garcia, a Portuguese adventurer who had acquired a working knowledge of the Guarani language. Garcia was intrigued by reports of the White King, quote-unquote, who supposedly lived far to the west and governed cities of incomparable wealth and splendor. For nearly eight years, he mustered men and supplies for the trip to the interior, and he led several European companions to raid the dominions of, quote-unquote, El Rey Blanco. So this kind of um, gave me parallels to people searching for, um, what's the term for like the city of gold? El Dorado? Yeah. Same kind of, like, gold lust. Um, in fact... Because uh, native tribes gave gifts um, to silver to a lot of people who came from, like, Spain, people thought there was, like, some huge cache of silver somewhere in the Americas, and so they were looking for the yeah, silver. Of course they did. Yeah. Um, another little story here. Um, so Garcia's group discovered the Iguazu Falls, which is a lot, a lot of prominence in the uh, mythology, actually, of the Guarani people. And they crossed the Rio Parana. Piranha. Sorry, Spanish is not my forte. <laughs> no, it's de it's definitely the Rio Piranha. Yeah, because all the piranhas that were in it. That makes so much sense. Um, and they they arrived at the site of Asuncion, which is the future capital of the country, thirteen years before it was actually founded. And uh, they tried to cross the Gran Chaco. We'll get to the Chaco later. Uh, eventually, penetrating the outer defenses of the Inca Empire. After Garcia's murder by his allies, news of the raid reached uh, Spanish explorers on the coast. One of these explorers was Sebastian Cabot, who attracted to the Rio Paraguay two years later. Uh, Cabot was sailing to the Orient in 1526, that's an old term, <laughs> when he heard of Garcia's exploits. He decided that the Rio Solis might provide easier passage to the Pacific, and he was eager to win the riches of Peru, that the fabled Eldorado kind of riches. And so he became the first ex uh, European to actually explore the estuary there, and he's a prominent figure in the, the conquest of Paraguay. Um, so, some more famous explorers like Salazar um, and de, Men de, de Mendoza. Um, they descended down the same river that was discovered earlier. Um, and they commenced building a fort in 1537 uh, on the date of the Feast of the Assumption. So, you're right to assume that, Kiki. And, oh, they, nice. and they called it Asuncion. Um, uh, in you mean the Nuestra Señora Santa Maria de la Asuncion? I, I did mean that. Good catch. Um, in full in English, <laughs> Our Lady, St. Mary of the Assumption. Um, so within 20 years, that new town of Asuncion had a population of around 1,500. Uh, transcontinental shipments of silver passed through Asuncion en route from Peru to Europe, and Asuncion became the center of a Spanish province that encompassed a large portion of, South, of Central South America. Uh, it was dubbed the La Provincia Giganta de Indias. Or, I don't know what that means, but it... Why don't you take that one, Tom? <laughs> I mean, Spanish. It, it means the gigantic province of the Indies. Cool. 
Fair enough. <laughs> uh, Asuncion was. This is the. You uh, don't see a lot of gigantic. Podcast. Of, or, of, yeah. <laughs> this is the white people trying no, no, their hardest okay. podcast. It's, it's all right. well, you guys are you guys are crushing it. Um, Asuncion was also the base for colonization for this part of South America. Spaniards moved northwestward across the Chaco to found Santa Cruz in present-day Bolivia, eastward to occupy the rest of present-day Paraguay, and southward along the river to refound Buenos Aires. Um, whose inhabitants had abandoned in 1541 to move to Asuncion. So this gets into the real big first era slash period of Spanish conquest or exploration of Paraguay. That's when the Jesuits and the Franciscans came over. Um, so after Asuncion's founded, uh, during the next 200 years, the Roman Catholic Church, especially the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, and the Franciscans, influenced the colony much more than the governors who succeeded. Um, uh, the first arrived with the Franciscans, who became to Paraguay in the second half of the 1500s, and they were began founding reductions in 1580. So, I came across this term a lot. They called them reductions or reducciones. Mm-hmm. That's right. I guess they mean missions. I don't Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's exactly right. There is a, for those interested in looking at a cinematic rendition of this history, there, oh, the 1986... Uh, Palm Dior at the Cannes Film Festival winning film is called The Mission and it stars Robert De Niro yeah yeah I heard about and, that yeah. and uh, Jeremy Irons and a young strapping Liam Neeson as uh, Jesuit missionaries Shit. working in the reductions or the missions um, in Paraguay particularly eastern Paraguay but extending into Argentina and, and Brazil as well and so these sites actually in Paraguay and in Brazil and Argentina still exist to this day. These ruins are uh, now UNESCO World yep. Heritage Sites. That's awesome. So, um, so yes, they basically created, from my rudimentary understanding, the Spanish and Portuguese were like, this area is fucking useless. So Jesuits, do what you want. Um, and they took that. Please to the, be careful. This is a non-swearing. Oh, podcast. is it really? No, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> Kiki, you swear every other word. Everyone wears it as explicit. Half, her, half Kiki's notes are: <laughs> this shit happened. It was yeah, real bad. I, I clearly was deaf when I listened to the last podcast. <laughs> um, but no, they, but they, you know, they basically gave the Jesuits free reign to develop this society, and uh, they ended up becoming quite powerful regionally at the time. So I'm not to stamp trample all over what you're about to say no. next but that's a little bit of backstory yeah the guest hosting already pays off it's great the big great bucks making extra big information bucks. heck yeah <laughs> um so the first jesuits arrived in asuncion in 1588 and they founded their first reduction it just sounds really weird like you're doing a reduction in the kitchen yeah that's it's, what i would think it's me. like it seems like it would be some sort of like weird genocide camp or something because like, you want to reduce the population mm-hmm. which so. doesn't seem like what they do so um they founded their first reduction of sen Ignacio Guazu. Yeah, which means uh, large or huge in Guarani. So St. Big Ignatius. So you mentioned Iguazu. Iguazu uh, literally translates to big water. The word for water in Guarani is just the letter Y, but it's pronounced uh, which I always thought was appropriate given. It's like I'm super thirsty and I'm dying. And I would probably, which actually means water, which is, you know, huge. One thing I read is that at kind of um cooperates that is so the um gorani language has a lot of like automatopoeic values mm-hmm. so like things you would hear in nature or they're like are self-evident like that right. form a lot of the words that's kind of fascinating right. and you mentioned yeah the largest export of hydropower the dam it's called itaipu which directly translates to the sound of water running over rocks which is 
Legit. That's legit. Also uh, an onomatopoeia. And you may remember from last week's linguist's armchair when the linguist's um, armchair. Our, our resident PhD in linguistics, a.k.a. my sister, <laughs> um, told us about how missionaries would interpret, like they would um, basically like translate into like English characters or like Roman characters. Yep the sounds that natives were making and their best approximation to be able to write it down and preserve language as best as they could. Mm. So that's how you can see, like, it looks like a Y, but it's pronounced differently. It's because they were just trying their hardest on, on translations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but anyway. Well, he's been waiting a little too long, so let's get to Philip III of Spain. All right. <laughs> In 1610, Philip III of Spain proclaimed that, quote-unquote, only the sword of the word shall be used to subdue the Paraguayan native tribes. That's a mighty Spanish monarchical thing to say. <laughs> so the church granted the Jesuits extensive powers to phase out the uh, then encomendia system. Um, and that angered uh, settlers there who depended on this the continuing supply of native labor and the concubines and all the messed up stuff therein. And so in an experiment in communal living, the Jesuits organized about 100,000 Guarani peoples and about 20 reducciones, reductions slash townships to bring them together in a more organized settlements and to protect them from colonists. Uh, the Jesuits conceived of an autonomous Christian state of these Indians, uh, quote-unquote, to stretch from the Paraguay, Paraná, there's the Paranas again, confluence to the coast, and back to the Paraná headwaters. Um, and I have a, a little more here about the Reducciones because it sounds like a really interesting part of colonialism that's different than the more... Um, like just kind of conquer and enslave uh, narrative that we've seen a lot in this podcast. Yeah, like in Guatemala and Antigua and Barbuda. Yeah. Um, so the new Jesuit reducciones were constantly threatened by the slave raiding um, mamalucos, mamelucos, um, and those were the people who had, who had uh, who were capturing people and selling them as slaves to planters in Brazil. Um, and they depleted the native populations near Sao Paulo, but they discovered that you know they're richly populated reducciones in Paraguay, and so they started these conflicts trying to raid and capture people. Now, the Spanish authorities chose not to defend these settlements, and the Jesuits and the Guaranis had little means to defend themselves against these raids. Um, so you have some ongoing conflicts, um, but the, reduc the reducciones. Um, they became quite, quite wealthy, and they offered the Guaranis like higher living standards, protection from these settlers. Um, and there's kind of a golden age um, where the Jesuits were in Paraguay, um, and these reducciones were kind of the main um, organizational um, way of life. Um, you know, the Jesuits in these reducciones they sponsored orchestras, musical ensembles, actors, troops. Um, usually, all profits derived from the Guarani labor was distributed back to the laborers. Uh, the system was later praised by leaders of the French Enlightenment, um, people who were not otherwise disposed to favor the Jesuits. Um, so and there's a quote here. Uh, the Jesuits established a monarchical authority in Paraguay, founded solely on their powers, powers of persuasion and on their lenient methods of government. Masters of the country, they, uh, they rendered happy the peoples under their sway. Voltaire called this Jesuit government uh, a triumph of humanity. So it's kind of a weird, like they had a little bit of a, an experiment as far as what can you do with new peoples mm -hmm. and like live together as opposed to just um, with a more Brazil model we've seen where it's um, kind of like putting in plantations and stuff. Um, so the, the, this takes us to the era where the end of the Jesuits happened. So the Paraguayan Jes Jesuits gained many enemies as a result of their success. Um, these reducciones fell prey to changing times. 
Um, there were revolts in the 1720s and 30s where settlers rebelled against these privileges that the Jesuits had given uh, and the government that had protected them. Uh, the Comunera revolt was in many ways a, re a reversal for the radical events that would begin with the with, that would begin with independence in 1811. Uh, the most prosperous families of Ascension, who's Yerba Mate, uh, who actually Tom brought some today. Yeah, would you, if you guys would just be a perfect opportunity to try Yerba Mate right Let's, now? We will do it. Yeah, okay, we'll try some. Okay. Um, we'll do that at the break, and then the we'll break. sip it in the second half so that Brad can. Yes. Yeah, I, I gotta get I gotta go faster. We got a lot of history here. So um, these most prosperous families, they had some mate, uh, they had tobacco plantations, they were competing with the Jesuits. And this led to one of the initial revolts, and the movement uh, garnered support from more poor farmers in the, inter in the interior. Um, and then also like subsistence farmers raised up arms too, and they started to seize the estates of the upper class and kind of kick them out of the countryside. A uh, radical army nearly captured Asuncion, but was repulsed. Um, Ironically, only with the help of Guarani troops from the Jesuit Reducciones that they were um, repulsed. That's some really good Spanish when you say Reducciones instead well, of like Reducciones. Because I'm trying no, my I best. Know, I really, no, I really think it's just funny. It's just Spanglish. It's a good thing. <laughs> um, so all those were... I'll never say it again after this slide. <laughs> Don't <sorry>. worry. <laughs> after the revolt failed, it was one of the earliest and most serious uprisings against Spanish authority in the New World. Which is an interesting note. Uh, the Spanish crown questioned discontinued support for the Jesuits. The Jesuit-inspired War of the Seven Reductions, which is in 1750 to 1761, only increased sentiment in Madrid for suppressing this empire within an empire. In a move to gain control of the wealth of the Reducciones, the Spanish king Charles III of Spain, uh, he expelled the Jesuits in 1767 and expropriated many of their properties. Uh, within a few decades of the, this expulsion, most of what the Jesuits had accomplished was lost. So this gets us into the next era, which is kind of the road to independence. As a result of its distance from the rest of the empire, because, you know, it's landlocked. Of course, yeah. um, And there's a lot of focus more on, like, the Central America and Bolivia and stuff up more north. Uh, Paraguay had little control over important decisions that affected its economy. Spain appropriated much of Paraguay's wealth through burdensome taxes and regulations. Uh, this mate we, we referenced, for instance, was practically priced out of the regional market. At the same time, Spain was using most of its wealth from the New World to import manufactured goods from the more industrialized countries of Europe, like Britain. Spanish merchants borrowed from British merchants to finance their, their purchases. Merchants in Buenos Aires borrowed from Spain, and those in Asuncion borrowed from their portinos, or residents of Buenos Aires, and the Paraguayan... What? Kiki? Sorry, I think it's Buenos Aires. Yeah, and it's porteños. Y'all gotta interject. I need help. <laughs> I'm, I'm floundering here. <laughs> like so many piranhas in the river. <laughs> and the Paraguayan peones, uh, these are landless peasants who were in dealt, and they bought those goods on credit, and the result was dire poverty in Paraguay in an increasingly impoverished empire. Um, so the French Revolution uh, and the rise of Napoleon Bonaparte back in England, I mean, not England, Europe, and the subsequent, subsequent wars there this weakened Spain, Spain's ability to maintain contact with and defend and control its colonies in the New World. Uh, British invasions of the River Plate of 1806-7 were repulsed by local colonial troops and volunteer militias without any help from Spain. Uh, and this leads to a revolution. So among the many causes of the May Revolution uh, were Napoleon's invasion of Spain in 1808, the capture of the Spanish king Ferdinand VII, and Napoleon attempts to put his brother Joseph Bonaparte on the Spanish throne. And this really severed the major remaining links between um, 
you know, the metropolis of Asuncion and the colonies, as um, Joseph Bonaparte had no supporters in Spanish America, and without a, without a king, the entire colonial system lost its legitimacy and the colonies revolted. So this gets us into independence. Um, so the actions of the last Spanish governor, Bernardo de Velasco, only further agitated local politicians and military officials. Um, believing that Paraguayan officers posed a threat to his rule, Governor Velasco dispersed and disarmed local forces and sent most of his soldiers home without paying them for their eight months of service. Uh, Velasco previously had lost face when believing that um, a rival general had won a battle um, in, at Paraguay. Uh, he fled the battlefield and caused a panic in Asuncion. Um, yeah, Paraguay is a state just south of Asuncion, not too far oh, away. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Um, one of the last draws was Velasco's negotiations with Brazilian Portuguese, during which he asked for military and financial help. This move ignited a military uprising in Asuncion on May the 14th, 1811, and the formation of a power-sharing junta, junta, Kiki, need help? I think it's junta. Junta. It's a junta. On May the 17th... You can call it junta. <laughs> Say it like a Bama boy. Junta. junta. <laughs> on May 17th... A public proclamation informed people that a ruling junta, consisting of Governor Velasco, <laughs> Gaspar Rodriguez de Francia, and Army Captain Juan Valeriano de Zabalos, de Bayos, had been created. You're doing really good. <laughs> You're doing your best, sweetie. Um, after the first revolutionary years, um, Congress in 1814 elected Jose Gaspar Rodriguez de Francia, more about him later, to be the first supreme dictator, Supremo, of Paraguay. No, it's Supremo. No, I know it is. It's just like, I was like, yeah, like, Burrito Supremo. Like, you know, it's talk about me. Which is named for De Francia. Good yeah. job. No. That's what they call him. Um, under, I'm just thinking bad now. So this gets into the era of um, three dictators from the same family that pretty much covers the entirety of the 19th century. So you have the dictatorship of Francia, um, 1814 to 1840. His son, Carlos Antonio Lopez, 1841 to 1862. And then finally, Francisco Solano Lopez from 1862 to 1870. Um, during this time, Paraguay developed quite differently from other South American countries. They encouraged um, self-sufficient economic development, state ownership of most of industries, and they opposed a high level of isolation from neighboring countries. This regime of the Lopez family was characterized by harsh centralism in production and distribution of goods, and there was no distinction between the public and private sphere. And this Lopez family ruled the country as it would a large estate. And then I have some, um, just some notes about um, Di Francia. The, the, he was called El Supremo Dictator. If that's correct, Dictator? Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah close enough. <laughs> um, so he did a lot of things. He made Paraguay extremely isolationist. Um, he, kind of, he had this network of espionage kind of that abolished free speech against him. He engaged in no international trade. Um, he targeted the Roman Catholic Church, and so he was trying to, he was trying to abolish the roots that Span the Spanish had laid and kind of abolish what the um, European centralities of power were. And he controlled every aspect of Paraguayan life, and then um, there's kind of con there's no real consensus on looking back at him because he instituted a lot of the things that are really like like Paraguayan identity and like them as a strong state, and like people theorize the only reason Paraguay survived these first post-revolution periods is because he was so strong and isolationist, but there was also like, there was slavery during this time, um, there was like really cracked down like free speech and stuff like that. So I have a note here that he's just like really controversial, but like beyond important. He's like really institutional. Yeah. 
in terms of the history. He looks kind of like he was like apparently notoriously short, so had a little man complex a little bit. Not that everybody wasn't short at the time, and he still. If you're noticeably noticeably short at the time, you're probably a pretty short guy. And he's still on the ten thousand guarani bill, the currency. Um, oh. And he kind of looks like kind of like a ratty looking guy, not super attractive. But to your point about um, decent- like abolishing roots of Spanish power, one of the things that he enacted was the uh, making it illegal to marry in the same racial identity that you, so you were had to from. Have a mixed so you had huh. to have a mixed marriage. That explains because like when I was doing the the stats for the snapshot, like yeah. having such a high mestizo or white population, ninety five percent. This doesn't make sense because it's not really mm-hmm. consistent with other countries. Yeah. Yep. Because... It all roots back to the initial years of independence and the policies to well, separate themselves from Spain. As a result, yeah, the mestizo population is among the highest in the world. Well, that's awesome. Well, it's so cool that there's an explanation for that because I was just like, this is weird and I wonder if it's false. Yeah, but no, it was actually, it was illegal, punishable by death from what I understand Jesus if you were Christ. found to have married within, your, wow. especially if you were Spanish white heritage. So he was right. really trying no one to, wants to like, create a yeah, he wanted to dilute, racial hierarchy. Yeah. Correct. So wow. in that's some true. ways, you, can, you know, the brutality of it as an idea was pretty horrific but in terms of like a larger societal concept and developing Paraguayan identity it was quite long lasting because of generations I kind of skip over the middle dictator of this period just for sake of time but there's a lot more I have here on uh, Solano so the third of these of these Lopez dictators Um, so um, his just some information about the end of his reign. So uh, his mouth miscalculations and ambitions uh, plugged Paraguay into a war with Argentina, Brazil, and Uruguay. Uh, this war resulted in the deaths of half of Paraguay's population and almost erased the country from the map. This is the Paraguayan War we'll get into next. Um, during this war, uh, Solano Lopez ordered the executions of his own brothers and had his mothers and sisters tortured when he suspected them of opposing him. So he really cracked down and went true dictator. Yeah, he was a um, big a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thousands of others, including uh, Paraguay's bravest soldiers and generals, also went to their deaths before firing squads or were hacked to pieces on Solano Lopez's orders. Others saw Solano Lopez as a paranoid megalomaniac, a man who wanted to be the Napoleon of South America, in quotes. Uh, willing to reduce his country to ruin and his countrymen to beggars in his vain quest for glory. Yeah, and he's known, he's still a national hero to this day, and they celebrate his name. And every town in Paraguay pretty much has a street named after him. But he referred to himself as the Mariscal, Mariscal Lopez, which means Marshal in oh, Spanish. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so he's Mariscal Francisco Solano Lopez. And that's a perfect segue um, to my next paragraph, which is like, I mean, there also there's some revisionist history later in the history we'll get into where like um, think dictators in the modern era they tried to rewrite some of the history paint this guy as a really nationalist hero. Actually, the town that I lived in was named after the revisionist historian that changed the narrative (laughs) of Mariscal Lopez. So, Um, so uh, as we mentioned earlier, Solano some miscalculations leading to that war, and this is the Paraguayan War, which is from. 1864 to 1870. I have a funny Kiki-esque note here. This is a new segment. <laughs> it's entitled Things Overshadowed by U.S. Civil War Coverage in History Class. So you yeah, would never would have heard about this because it happens during the Civil War, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. You know, I'm going to guess that probably something to do with American cotton production. I'm going to guess that Paraguay is negatively affected by it. I don't know. I didn't get into that. Then, um, But you're safe I mean, to assume. 
I'm just going, yeah, I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket if I ever learn anything in the future. Okie dokie. So, because another thing in the rest of our episodes is American Cotton Production has fingers in all different kinds of really pies does, during this yeah. time. Like, we're mm-hmm. finding out about it in Fiji, where like Fijians are being kidnapped and forced to work on cotton yeah. farms in Oceania, uh, Guatemala, same thing. So, it's a, a trend. Uh, so, the Paraguayan War. Um, also known as the War of the Triple Alliance, and the Great War in Paraguay was a South American war fought from 1864 to 1870 between Paraguay and the Triple Alliance of Argentina, the Empire of Brazil, and Uruguay. It was the deadliest and bloodiest interstate war in Latin America's history. It particularly devastated Paraguay, which suffered catastrophic losses in population. Almost 70% of its adult male population died and it was forced to cede territory to Argentina and Brazil. According to some estimates, Paraguay's pre-war population of 525,000 was reduced almost by half to 221,000, only of which 28,000 of his remaining population were men. Uh, The war began in late 1864 as a result of conflict between Paraguay and Brazil caused by the Uruguayan War. Um, Argentina and Uruguay entered the war against Paraguay in 1865, and then it became known as this War of the Triple Alliance. Um, The war itself ended with the total defeat of Paraguay. After it lost in conventional warfare, Paraguay conducted a drawn-out guerrilla resistance, which was a disastrous strategy in hindsight that resulted in the further destruction of the military and much of the civilian population through battle casualties, hunger, and diseases. This guerrilla war lasted for 14 months until President Francisco Solano Lopez, who we talked about just before, who was killed in action by Brazilian forces in the Battle of Cerro Cora in March of 1870. Argentine and Brazilian troops occupied Paraguay until 1876. Um, estimates of these losses we've, we've gone over, they were catastrophic. And this leads us into that period of occupation. Um, so 1870 marked the lowest point in Paraguayan history. That, that has been... like. There's consensus on that among historians. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Paraguayans had died in the, in, the, in the war, and then, you know, the country was destitute, it was practically destroyed, and there was a lengthy occupation um, where these ter- large patches of territory, you know, often territory that had been used for, like, farming and stuff like that, were seceded to Brazil and Argentina. Um, we went over the rural... So the rural populace had to, like, just had to, like, do subsistence farming as it had done for for centuries, or, like, a meager kind of existence. There wasn't a lot of, you know, economic cohesion. Um, and ownership of the Paraguayan economy quickly passed to foreign speculators and adventurers who rushed in to take advantage of the rampant chaos and corruption. Um, the Paraguayan economy, which was until then mostly state-owned, it was dismantled, privatized, and became dominated by these Argentinian and British companies. Um... The Brazilian troops finally left the country in the midsummer of 1876 after the Machain Irigoyen Treaty was signed. Um, and this gets us into, um, I guess, the modern political history of, of uh, Paraguay, where you have like this, the things that arise that are still seen. So you have, I have here, it's the era of the uh, Azules versus the Colorados. Yeah, Colorado! So, like, I had to look That's it up. That's where I'm from. Blues versus Reds. Um, with the Azules being the more liberal blue party and the Colorados being the more red conservative party. Yeah, yeah, the Colorado party is not the green party. No. no. The Azules are commonly they're referred to as the liberal. Liberal, okay. I was making a joke no. about weed yeah. in, in green. Which is, which is great because actually most of South America's weed is grown in Paraguay. So. Really? Hey. Seems 
So there you go. Your joke wasn't just one off, Kiki. Oh, okay. <laughs> so the politics of the first post-war decade were heavily influenced by deeply personal conflicts by Lopez loyalists and their more liberal opponents. Uh, but just as important was the backing of various uh, politicians by Argentina and Brazil because of the occupation. Uh, but in the end, the Brazilian-supported politicians won, and this established the rule of the first Colorado party. And we're still, there's still a Colorado party today. There's a Colorado so. party going on all the time. Okay, we get it. You're from Colorado. Um, uh, the era of party politics in Paraguay was free to begin in earnest. Uh, nonetheless, the evacuation of foreign forces did not mean the end of foreign influence. Uh, both Brazil and Argentina remained deeply involved in Paraguay as a result of their connections with Paraguay's rival political forces. Don't yawn, Kiki. This is important history. Sorry. <laughs> the political rivalry between future liberals and Colorado started in 1869 before the war was over. And this is when the terms, you know, Azules and Colorado's first appeared. Um, and so this this established the two political parties. And in 1904, we skip ahead a little bit, there was the Liberal Revolution in August 1904, which began as a popular movement, but uh, liberal rule quickly degenerated into factional feuding, military coups, and civil wars. A political instability was extreme in this liberal era. Which saw 21 governments in 36 years between That's the a period, lot of governments. It's a lot of governments in the years in the period 14, 19, 14, that was it, 1904 to 1922. Paraguay had 15 presidents. That's a lot of presidents. It's a lot, and I'm I'm gonna try to go through more of the big eras now because we're into the 1900s and we're getting really long on our history. So we'll get to the ma- the major kind of points. Um, the first big next thing that happens is the Chaco War. That's it's right. It's the Chaco, right? Not like Chaco was okay. Chaco is like the shoes. Yeah, I was gonna say <laughs> the shoes war. Um, so the Chaco yeah. War happened from 1932 to 1935. It was fought between Bolivia and Paraguay over control of the northern part of the Gran Chaco region, uh, known in Spanish as the Chaco Boreal of South America, which was thought then to be rich in oil. It was also referred to as La Guaira. Um, Guerra, I think it de is. la sed I'm sure it is mm-hmm. um, which is Spanish for the war of thirst um, it is the bloodiest military conflict fought in South America during the 20th century poor Paraguay man yeah, they haven't above. gotten a break in a pretty long time <laughs> um, and it's also between two of its poorest countries at that point um, both having previously lost territory to neighbors in 19th century wars so this is, I mean, this is a war I don't think either of them needed to have at this point um, during the war, both landlocked countries faced difficulties shipping arms and supplies to neighboring countries. Bolivia, in particular, faced external trade problems coupled with poor internal communications. And although Bolivia had lucrative mining income and a larger, better-equipped army, a series of factors turned the tide against it, and Paraguay came to control most of this disputed zone by its wars in. And I think this Chaco region is still part of Paraguay today. Yeah, it's like about two-thirds of the country is in this ecological area called the Chaco, but only about 3% of the population live in this area because it okay, well, fucking so. sucks. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't seem yeah, like a... It's like an arid wasteland kind of place. There's still uncontacted indigenous tribes in certain pockets of it. I took a bus across it, actually as well and so there's really kind of just one major road that connects paraguay and bolivia to this day it's very underdeveloped and inhospitable do you you know if there's actually is oil there like is there well i mean depends on if you prescribe to the mysticism of this idea that oil exists there and it actually kind of resonates quite a bit with paraguayan folklore and many people still believe that oil is there except there's all these factors that have prevented prevented its extraction 
So there's still this idea that it's sort of like a gold rush area, despite evidence to the contrary. That idea is still very persistent as, well, it's there, but we just can't yeah. use it. So maybe, I guess, is the huh. answer to your question. Um, but but yeah. no, also. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, final verbal in the Chaco War. Um, the, the ultimate peace treaties after the war. So two-thirds of the Chaco reason of the Chaco region that disputed territories went to Paraguay. So two-thirds went back. Um, all right, then we get into some 1930s stuff. We have the February Revolution. And this, after the revolution, leads into a string of military dictators that take this into the modern day. So this is the final big, I don't know, chaotic period. Thank God. The revolution in February 1936 overthrew liberal party politicians who had won the war, um, that Chaco War. Uh, the soldiers, veterans, students, and others who revolted actually felt that the victory had come despite the liberal government, not because of it. Um, promising a national and social revolution, they occupied Asuncion and brought then Colonel Rafael Franco to power. Um, despite popular enthusiasm that greeted this February revolution, Franco's government lacked a, cure, a clear program. In a sign of the times, Franco, uh, is it Franco or Franco? Or should I? Franco. Franco, okay. Franco practiced his Mussolini-style spellbinding oratory from a balcony. Uh, but when he published his distinctly fascist-sounding Decree Law Number 152, promising a totalitarian transformation similar to those in Europe, protests erupted, good for you. The, the youthful idealistic elements that had come together to produce this, um, this movement were actually a hodgepodge of conflicting uh, political tendencies and social opposites. Um, so, and Franco was soon deep in political trouble. Uh, get him. Um, uh, his, his cabinet reflected almost every conceivable shade of dissident political opinion. This included socialists, fascist sympathizers, nationalists, Colorados, even Colorados, yeah. Even Colorados. And, and, liber and liberal uh, civicos. Um, so, and then after Franco, um, I'm kind of just going to go through the dictators lead us in the modern day. So you have um, the first of which is Marshal Jose Felix Estigarribia. Mm -hmm. Good one. Um, uh, Yours were men. <laughs> he was a decorated Paraguayan war hero. <laughs> I'm just skip over it. And an elected president of Paraguay for the Liberal Party, who following his election, repositioned himself to become a dictator. Um, he died in a presumed accidental airplane crash barely a year after his election. So he uh, didn't actually, pretty sure Queen Elizabeth did it. She did do it. After <laughs> Diana, she's like, who's next? Um, this was 50 years before Diana, <laughs> yep, but sure, she still. Um, That's then, recurring. Then comes General uh, Higinio Moringo Martinez. Um, he was a general and political figure in Paraguay and the president and military dictator from September 7th, 1940, following uh, Estegarabia until June 3rd, 1948. Uh, opposition to his rule led to the Paraguayan Civil War of 1947. And then, um, so following this civil war, you have a period known as El Strongato. And this is the 35-year period in the history of Paraguay between 1954 and 1989, when Paraguay was ruled by the dictator following the civil war, known as Alfredo, help me, Tom. Uh, Strassner. Strassner, okay. I, thought, I almost said Strassner, but I know that wasn't right. So Strassner. So was, Taylor Swift was born in 1989, so it was likely due to her birth. Huge, huge year. Yeah, for that explains Paraguay. so much. Like she died. I mean, he died, and then like she was born. Like the Avatar yeah, he, cycle. He didn't yeah. die. He went and chilled in Brazil for years afterwards. Yeah, maybe he is time. Taylor Swift. Maybe yeah, he could be. <laughs> That's we're almost there, guys. Stay with me. So Alfredo Strassner. <laughs> 
Um, he was a Paraguayan military officer who um, served as president during that long time period, 54 to 89. He ascended to this position after leading an army coup in 1954. His 35-year-long rule, marked by an uninterrupted period of repression in the industry, is the longest in modern South American history. Strasser's rule is ranked 21st longest among other non-royal national leaders since 1900. But he's one of the longest-serving non-royal heads of state. So that's why Queen Elizabeth was so angry. Yeah, she's... Um, um, you steal <laughs> my crown! <laughs> he gained, pow- he gained power in 1954. He ousted Federico Chavez. Um, he became president... Who, who, who had become president after winning an election. And she was the sole candidate. Um, and then Stressner was a staunch anti-communist and... Here's a point. He had the backing of the United States for most of his time in power. So, cool. The U.S. backed him. So that kind of gets us into modern Paraguay. After his rule, you had um, an update in 1992 of the Constitution. And this June Constitution in 1992 established a democratic system of government and dramatically improved protection of fundamental rights. In May 1993, uh, there's a Colorado Party candidate, uh, Juan Carlos Guasmozzi. He was elected as the first civilian president who wasn't part of the military. And in almost 40 years, um, in what international observers deemed fair and free elections. Uh, the newly elected majority opposition in Congress quickly demonstrated its independence from the executive by rescinding legislation uh, previously uh, dominated Congresses by the Colorado Party, and with support from the United States, uh, the Organization of American States, and other countries in the region, the Paraguayan people rejected a 1996 attempt by the then Army Chief uh, Oviedo to oust this president, he was attempting another kind of coup, um, and this was an important step to strengthen the Paraguayan Republic. So they had a new constitution, a civilian president, they were, they, uh, they stopped the coup attempt, and that kind of brings in the modern Paraguayan history, of which Tom will talk more about, you know, more modern experiences, and we'll get into some of the cultural discussion, because that's a long history, and then take this into our first break. Nice. Good job, Brad. <laughs> Welcome back to the world as we know it. We're here sipping some mate. And as is tradition, we're going to kick things back off from our first break with a trip to Kiki. In the flag corner. It's my favorite segment. Oh, wow. Uh, so the flag of Paraguay is actually inspired by the Dutch flag. Fun fact, the current Russian flag, also inspired by the Dutch flag. Why? Uh, because the Dutch flag signifies independence and liberty, as the Dutch people have been. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, it's red, white, and blue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, I mean, props for originality. Not. Just kidding. Uh, but the cool thing about the Paraguayan flag is that the Paraguayan coat of arms in the middle, it's actually a reversible flag. So each side is different, which makes it unique. Uh, so the coat of arms on one side, if you call it the obverse side, features, um, you know, the coat of arms, which is a yellow five-pointed star surrounded by a green wreath of palm and olive leaves tied to ribbons in the colors of the stripes. And the other side is different. It's the seal of the treasury, right? Yeah, seal of the treasury, uh, which is a yellow lion below a red Phrygian cap on top of a pole, which symbolizes courage. If you don't know about the Phrygians, it was a an elite. I don't. 
an elite Roman army in oh, the Roman the, Empire. That were lions, apparently. Well, yeah, lions everywhere. <laughs> courage and stuff. Uh, and the words pos e justicia. Justicia, yeah, which means peace and justice. So I got I got a little not confident about my Spanish J, but I think I brought it back. It wouldn't be justicia, right? It would be justicia. It's Latin. It's Latin, right? Pos, no pos. No. Oh, Spanish probably derives from the Latin. Yeah, but also it's a Romance language which derives from Latin, so pretty close. Good job, Brad. Um, You did it. So the differences in the obverse and reverse sides comes from the period when Jose de Francia, which Brad talked about, was in power um, and was revised in 2013, um, and the coat of arms was simplified. So that's what it looks like. If you're looking at it, it has three horizontal stripes, red on top, white in the middle, blue on the bottom. Um, and if you're looking at it from far away, it just like a little little circle in the middle, but that's the coat of arms. It's different from both sides. So if you have a chance to check it out, make sure you check out both sides. It's awesome. All right. So I guess we get to get to uh, talking about Tom. Yeah, and so... And what you know about Paraguay. Why were you there? What did you learn when you were there? What was a great, fun experience? Lots of stories. Um, thank you for the opportunity to ramble. I will try to keep my remarks concise. Uh, I think I mentioned it briefly earlier, but I served in the Peace Corps in Paraguay from uh, 2011 to 2013. Uh, a bit about the state of the world in 2011. Uh, some of you may recall a I global a financial crisis that was occurring at the time of my college graduation, which prompted. Uh, series of existential crises that brought me to the landlocked nation of Paraguay. And uh, Peace Corps has kind of an interesting history in the country. It's actually the longest continuous Peace Corps country. Um, It's been there since 1967, uninterrupted, even during the periods where the dictator, Schrosner, was overthrown, which is interesting. And he, was, he was U.S. backed, so yeah, he yeah, was yeah, U.S. Yeah. backed. And then when we decided to bail on that hard, actually, the day he was overthrown, a group of Peace Corps volunteers landed in the country, and they were just sort oh, of shit. like whatever. And so when I was actually there too, they had their president um, in 2008 that was elected was a man named Fernando Lugo, who was the Archbishop of the Catholic Diocese, and he was the first non-Colorado party president since prior to the dictatorship hmm. and after the Chaco War. And he uh, basically won because there was a schism in the Colorado party where they separated and ran two candidates. And then every single other party was like, fuck the Colorados, let's get the archbishop in there. And he won. And then four years later, when I was there, he got overthrown in a constitutional coup, Yeah, which was just like kind of like a Sunday I remember it like listening to NPR and my mom had sent me like, are you okay with the overthrow of the presidency? And I was like, I'm just kind of just chilling. I saw some motorcycles in the town. It looked like they were having some sort of meeting, but it was, you know, kind of whatever. (laughs) So I get to say that I lived through an overthrow, uh, an impeachment, maybe an illegal it was legal, but I mean, come on. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was clearly forcibly removing Colorado. Yeah, there's you know some right. Some so the Colorados clearly wanted power, and the guy that is the current president, this man Horatio Cartes, is 
infamous for being one of the richest men in Paraguay, but he also has some not so subtle linkages to drug trafficking and other uh, things. As this well. was the guy that got ousted. This is the guy no, that's he's currently, currently president. Oh, currently, yeah. So he ran a very robust My apologies for Michio. <laughs> so he actually uh, he's quite wealthy and he runs owns a lot of tobacco production. But yeah, anyway, he it's rumored that he sort of was complicit in trying to overthrow the government and uh, anyway so no, none of these claims are substantiated this is all alleged of course but uh, uh, yeah, this is not a political podcast right but per- perception but, uh, <laughs> uh, at the time so it was not surprising that the Colorado's got their act together and he ended up being president but anyway so that's just a little bit about my time there where did you live while you were there? so I actually lived I mentioned briefly at, in a town called Juan in English, it's John E. O'Leary, but in Spanish, it's Juan E. Oleari. It's a town maybe about an hour from the border with Brazil okay. and about maybe an hour from the second largest city in Paraguay, which is called Ciudad del Este, City of the East, which is really close to where Itaipu Dam, the hydroelectric dam that's built on the river between Brazil and Paraguay is, and not too far from Iguazu Falls. The city itself, where I lived, is not known for anything. Uh, really, except for being named after this revisionist historian. Uh, Yeah, except for there's average Peace Corps volunteers. But Ciudad del Este, which is the major city not too far from us, is known for its black market and smuggling operations um, with weapons and alcohol. And actually, the best part about it is that it's this giant area where Brazilians can come and buy goods tax-free. So there's quite a bit of shopping malls filled with like very high-end luxury goods that people will fly from different cities in Brazil to the Brazilian city, which is called Foz, and then cross what they call the Friendship Bridge into Ciudad del Este to buy tariff-free electronics that might not have gotten there legally in the first place. Yeah. So it's quite, yeah, it's, quite the cool. ci- it's quite the city. It's known as, uh, and then it's close to the Argentine border as well, and the area is like commonly referred to as the tri-border region. And Americans are advised to not go there. So, <laughs> I can't so it's been, so been a lot of time there myself. So, yeah. Um, yeah, anyway. So, yeah, that's a little bit about where I lived. It's like the biggest, the biggest landscape wise. The red, the earth is red, and that's what they call, that's where Colorado derives from. It means oh, nice. red earth, kind of. And it's mostly industrial agricultural production, particularly soy, but also. Uh, uh, the sixth of, largest producer of soybeans yeah, in the world. Yeah, soy, yeah, wheat, is. corn. Um, How do you know that? I did my fucking research. <laughs> that a girl. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, you have actually, so you have Brazilian farmers, Paraguayan farmers. You have a large Mennonite population that does a lot of agriculture. And then you have actually Japanese colonies there as well. Oh. And so uh, we know that, according to our research, it's estimated that like 40 to 50 percent of the Paraguayan population lives in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to like metropolis centers, you're in a pretty isolated area. Um, it seems like the majority of the country is probably pretty isolated. What was that like to move, especially like from America? So what's interesting about that is that Paraguay, like geographically, is about the size of California, hmm. but 97% of its country lives in the southern third of its area. So despite the fact that you know it's largely agrarian economically, the population is relatively dense given the size of where most people live. So it only takes about six hours to cross the country. If you didn't have traffic and stuff, it wouldn't take that long to take a bus from Asuncion hmm. to the Brazilian border. And so everybody sort of lives 
usually between you know 100 to 150 kilometers away from a paved road and but the majority of the country is still dirt roads except for these kind of highways that connect the major cities and this kind of triangle from Asuncion to Ciudad del Este which is the Brazilian close to the Argentine border and then further south to uh, a city called Encarnacion which shares is across a river from Argentina so they have these major highways um, but for the most part if you're trying to get into you know communities in the interior it's still largely connected by dirt roads even though on paper it might say that the road is paved corruption in politics is uh is quite quite rampant it's one of the most corrupt nations in south america i have a question so let's say you um you you're a paraguayan family and you have a kid and their kid gets into school in school are they going to be taught like spanish or like guarani like what is like the lingua for like where people use them yeah that's a great question um the brief story is that under the dictatorship of Strassner, it was illegal to teach and speak Guarani, despite the fact oh, no. that most people used it as a primary form of communication. The, the language is super hybridized, and they refer to the mix of the two languages as Jopara. And so, rural, like speaking in generalities, rural areas they speak more Guarani than Spanish, and then urban areas they speak more Spanish. So, hmm. um, but the country is, I think, over one of the most bilingual countries on earth. Everybody speaks Spanish and Guarani. So it wasn't until 2003 that the language became an official language of the country. I think it was 2003, at which point they started teaching it in schools. Um, but what they've started teaching in schools is the pure Guarani language, which isn't the colloquial version that most people hmm. communicate with. So what I, my perception of what it's actually done is that for younger generations who started receiving this education, they've actually maybe even evolved the language even more so it's separate from their parents as they were taught words that weren't commonly taught in Guarani. For example, the word for thank you in Spanish, most people know is gracias, but the Guarani word is aguije, which wasn't something that people would say in conversations mm -hmm. until the word became kind of taught in the mm -hmm. schools. Um, so I don't know, people don't necessarily know that, but when if you say, ever say that, people are very surprised that you know, would know that word because we just usually say gracias. Huh. So I'd be interested to see now that it's been for, what has it been, like you know, over 15, almost 15 years that they've been teaching Guarani to this younger generation, if they notice a distinct evolution in how people communicate and whether there's challenges with parents communicating with their kids as a result of the language. But Paraguay is one of the worst education systems in South America as well in terms of international rankings. So the effect to which this language is being yeah. understood and taught, you know, half an hour a week per average, maybe over the course of your yeah. school career might not be enough to actually substantiate whether or not. But you, clearly something's changing for sure. We also know um, from my research that like Paraguay isn't a big tourist pool. Um, people will generally go there, you know, to hit, oh, I'm going to all the South American countries. Right. They don't really want to stay too long, but it is very cheap to visit. Um, so people right. say, like, yeah, if you want to get a huge bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. what's, their, what's their currency again? It's the Guarani dollar? Wait. Guarani, yeah, Guarani dollar. I don't know what the exchange rate is now, but at the time I was there, it was about 4,500 to one. So the increments were usually in thousands. So you like had the 2,000, yeah. yeah. So, um, 
So Which is good, like inflation rates too, we'll see commonly in South America in countries that got struck hard with inflation rates. Right. Or actually, you know, anywhere where this is happening, Zimbabwe is another prime example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huh. that's right. And uh, in terms of tourism, I mean, I got, and this sounds disparaging, but it's not wrong. Most of like the natural aesthetic of the country is, you know, like Iguazu Falls is not in Paraguay. It's close to Paraguay, but not in, you can't go, you know, have to go to Brazil or Argentina to see it. And then they have the Jesuit reductions, uh, and there's some interesting domestic history, but it is a poor country, and so they don't have a whole lot of, you know, yeah. natural beauty in the same way that you would think of, like, beaches or waterfalls yeah, there's, there's or no mountains. there's no those resorts coming yeah. in. And yeah. So you don't really have that. It's hot, and uh, most of the country is not, people don't live in it. So if you go there, it's very unique, but you don't necessarily think, I'm going to go here to see this mountain or this beach or this you know institution it just doesn't have that type of uh type of uh tourism industry so what you often see is you know you'll see some you know i feel like i've seen countless youtube videos of some bro being like check it out i'm going to paraguay it's crazy here and it's like okay well you you (laughs) look like a tool yeah and you're just going there because it has this relative anonymity in terms of the backpacking trails of south america but yeah you're absolutely right Anytime you meet travelers down there, and you you know when we would say it's like yeah I'm in Paraguay, what, what do you mean? It's like I live there, and they're like why? And I'm like solid question. It's, it's like you could do one of those like super cool Peace Corps trips to like France. Yeah, no. that was a joke about a developed country. Yeah, I don't think the Champs Elysees needs a lot of you know. No, and so <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, but yeah, you know, it's just you don't it doesn't necessarily occur to you what to do there when you're traveling. Hmm. And so as a result of that, you don't see a tremendous amount of foreign tourists um, in terms of like people from other countries that live there. I mean, I think the thing it's most famous for is it was a free, oft, oft fled to country from former Nazis. And so it's not too uncommon to meet ancestors of these people with blue eyes whose name is Adolfo, which is Spanish for Adolf yeah, and things sense, yeah. like that. So, and Argentina too, yeah. And Argentina as well, yeah. So, yeah, so in terms of tourism, you know, it's a, kind of a tough country to get around. Spanish is widely spoken, but if you get off the grid, you know, you kind of really need to learn how to speak some Guarani, you know, to really get by. And uh, as a result of that, I think that people are deterred by by that Fair lack enough. of a tourist infrastructure. For sure. Well, that's the end of my questions. Yeah, we, uh, we, go to we, our next we, we took learning podcasts to new heights. We learned a lot today. That was a lot. We really did. Um, um, so do you want to, let's do... Changes to familiarity ratings, and we'll get into current events. Um, I'm going to change my familiarity rating from a 1 to a 3. Nice. I feel like, I mean, it's the same same story every week, same, the exact same thing. Uh, I wonder how much more is going on in Paraguay in the historical. I think, I mean, with huge changes in the past 15 years even, it's very interesting. But talking to someone who's lived there for a significant amount of time... Um, yeah, I, I feel like I learned two points worth. Two whole points. Tom? <laughs> yeah, I learned more about myself. I don't know. I guess I know more about Paraguay than I give myself credit for. But well, You do. You have a tremendous amount. Yeah, I guess I did live there, which seems wild to say. But important. I'm going to um, go from a one, just like Kiki, up to a, let's say a four. Why not? Um uh, I found it's the, not a competition, Brad. <laughs> I, I found the history really enlightening, um, really interesting. It's our first 
yes, South, for a South American country. For a South American country and proper, and so um, kind of led a bit into like Spanish colonization, which we hadn't really we had in Guatemala, but this is another kind of um, fact. It's a different animal, also being landlocked. Um, I think it does change things a lot because the missionaries going to landlocked Paraguay are doing a totally different system because like they can't leave right away; they're inland. Uh, and so their choice to try to like make something with their reducciones uh, and to work with like natives to build kind of like mini societies it seemed like kind of different than just evangelization and yeah the Jesuits tried something it didn't work in the long run no, but they but tried something it really helped that they didn't have gold and silver yes <laughs> it was yeah it was like they were on the Silk Road that silver from Peru but they weren't they weren't directly being mined for something. Thing helps. Um, so yeah, is this our but first it, landlocked country? Nah, nope. Tajikistan. Afghan- oh, you're right. Tajikistan. Tajikistan. Definitely. Afghanistan doesn't have a coast, does it? No, it doesn't. I was just thinking about the Black Sea. South Sudan doesn't. Kiki, you know- we only do this is the landlocked country podcast, Kiki, and we do islands sometimes. Um, yeah, it's, a, it's really when recently. Um, it's Montenegro. PG. <laughs> All right. Don't have <laughs> All right, so familiarity ratings, we get some increases. Uh, <laughs> so that's going to wrap up our discussion on Paraguay. We're going to segue into now, you know, our current events, what's going on in the world. So, Kiki, what's new in your world? What am I reading? So, I read three books in the past week. One is called The Stowaway, which is actually a very interesting story uh, about a young man who. Uh, wanted to like so he wanted more than anything to stow away on one captain. I think it's Captain Hawk. His expedition to Antarctica in the twenties and thirties. He wanted to, and so at first he like gets on the ship and they find him and they're like get the fuck off the ship. And then he just like keeps going back, um, trying his hardest. He gets on the supply ship after the first ship takes off. Gets to go to Antarctica. Uh, why because <laughs> like no because like it's like the last frontier who's like oh. no one else it's the last thing that we can see that's going to be new and actually someone had gotten there before but they're going to be the first ones to have a, a pilot on a plane who is going to fly over the south pole yeah. which hadn't been done before so he gets to antarctica it's fucking miserable cold um, i hear <laughs> yeah super cold getting less cold he though. gets to go to new zealand um and then he's like wasn't chosen to stay over but he gets to go back a few times uh and then like the rest of his life is kind of a disappointment just my personal opinion and it was a good it was a well-written book especially for someone who's like a young man whose heart is full of adventure yeah sure uh and this describe yourself as a young man with a heart full of adventure no i said if you like reading about young men with hearts full of adventure and women were solidary so they're completely prohibited from that kind of thing mm-hmm. at the time they said like there was a ton of women who tried stowing away there's like women applicants to the ship and they're just like nope so you know anyway so i read that book it was called the stowaway by Lori gwen shapiro then i read the devil wears prada because it was the last week of my internship and i'm like i just need to ride this out guess what not one of the few instances not as good as a movie the movie was better than the book. Well, I th- well, okay. So I think it's one of those stories. I like the movie, but it's obvious. I can tell it's one of those movies where like they took the source material and then they said, "All right, actress Meryl Streep." Yeah, Great yeah, that's like, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, Meryl Streep is iconic in it, but also like I found like I didn't like like the friend characters in the book. 
as much as like I mean I felt like the friend characters in the movie were shitty anyway. You mean Anne Hathaway's friends? Anne Hathaway's friends, right? But like in the book, I'm like I I didn't like them to begin with. I never wanted to take their side in any arguments. Whereas in the show, they're dicks. But like after a while, you can kind of get it. I don't know. I don't know. And then I've been reading um, this book called Assholes, a theory by Aaron James, which is actually about the philosophical reasons why we're disinclined to like assholes, like people who are dicks. Oh, I feel like it's the opposite in terms of the laws of attraction. Well, that seems like some sort of thing that you might want to say in your own time. This one, it's like, why, like, someone, <laughs> someone who is in it, sorry. No, okay, okay, no, no, I think you're, if you're going in the direction which I thought you were, which is like, oh, girls only like assholes, they never go for the nice guy, it's because the guys, nice guys always have, like, an alternative plan, and, like, an asshole, you know what he wants, he's clear, but anyway, as a lady, that's what I'm saying, but this one about assholes is about how, like, it's rejection of, like, communal thinking, like, someone who thinks that there's somehow entitled to more, or they can break the rules because they get it. And so they break all these unspoken codes. And so it goes into some of like Immanuel Kant's theories of um, morality yeah. and ethics. And so, it's, goes, so it's more about contrarians and like social assholes. Yeah, and like people okay. who do. And so it's going right now. I'm like in the political theory section where it's like, why, were, why are some people so put off by Bill O'Reilly? Some people call him an asshole because he feels entitled to say all these really shitty things. Whereas people, um, conservatives, are like, oh, he's just telling it like it is because other people are afraid to do it. So it's going through this. He also did some reprehensible things. He was an asshole. Yeah, he's also (laughs) an asshole. Um, And, like, some people are praised for being assholes. Some people are condemned for it. Uh, And, like, Hmm. I don't know. I'm only, like, about, like, three-fourths of the way through of it. It sounds sounds like a Malcolm Gladwell book that he wouldn't write because he's too, like, nice. He's too much of an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, but that's by Aaron James. It's called Assholes of Theory. Next week. If I finish it, if you guys want to know about it, I'll tell you. Or you can just follow me on Twitter, and I tweet about the books I read all the time. What about you, Brad? I'll talk about some books, too. So, um, well, I mean... I didn't know you could read. I read often, Kiki. It's <laughs> crazy. Um, so, I'll talk about series in general. So, I'm watching Sharp Objects on HBO. Oh, I... Yep. It's really good. I just watched an episode from, last, uh, from this past Sunday. Oh, my God, I watched that yesterday. I love whodunits. It's a good show. I can't wait for the... I actually ordered the book on Amazon. and it's, I actually opted for the longer delivery so I can like get it in the future, like closer when the show is over. Because I know if I'll get it, I'll read it all the way through and spoil the ending. I want the show ending to come first. So that's fun. Um, and then, unlike Kiki, she likes nonfiction slash... You know, like, I like some fiction, but mostly I read nonfiction. Yeah. And then I almost all... I read like long fantasy series. And so two of my fantasies that I'm reading... One is The King Killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss. One is Dresden Files by um, Jim Butcher. I mean, they're really, really good, critically acclaimed series, but they're both in the wait between the next book going to come out. Like, long waits, like six, seven years for like the next book in Selma to come out. And in the interim, both um, authors have released, like, novellas, like, side character novellas. And so I, like, instead of, like, buying these books, I walked to Barnes & Noble and I sat down and I read them and I left. <laughs> like, game <laughs> the system. Yeah. Um, yeah, fuck you, capitalism. Yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so <it's, laughs> Why don't you just go to the library? It's not the, the library. It's too far to walk. <laughs> <laughs> 
Also, Barnes and Noble has that nice little cafe in it, and it's like it's Starbucks yeah. coffee, but the foods are better. It was by it far. was comfy. I read some novellas. It was fun. I there's a new podcast I listened to called um, it's it's Lightspeed Magazine, which is a science fiction magazine. Uh, their podcast is they have really good narrators. They read um, science fiction short stories that get released to them or get like submitted. And some are like really, really out there. Some are like just like really good ones they want to promote. And so that's really fun because it's a short story and it's science fiction. So they're like 30 minute, 40 minute bursts. And a science fiction short story has to be like crazy out there to even grab your attention. And then also have really, really quick world building, has some like really neat little like crux of a story. Um, so they're fun. So yeah, that's what I'm doing in my life. Tom, what's going on in your life? Anything you want to share? Yeah, do you know how to read? Uh, Well, it's a daily struggle, work in progress for sure. I actually have a friend who wrote a book that I guess I can plug on this show a number of years ago that I've neglected to read because of the gesture of my friend, yeah, my show of my friendship. But the book is called Anika. It's by Leo Frankfurt. You can actually buy it for $4.99 on Amazon or I'm pretty sure barnesandnobles.com so to make up for Brad's robbery I honestly can't even tell you if the book's good or not because I'm too blinded by friendship but it, the premise from what I understand is a combination of Buddhist mysticism with professional football so okay. if, if either of those topics are interesting to you or you feel like you'd like to figure out how these can possibly blend together Check It Out by Leo Frankfurt. It's called Anika. I'd like to support your friend, but honestly, anything about sports drives me up. Like, right. And, and, I don't I, and I'm a harsh anti-Buddhist, so there's a thing. Right. That's tough. <laughs> <laughs> Very polarizing topics, for sure. Yeah. But this is a follow-up to another book he wrote called Beard. Um, so check those two books out and support my friend, who is a struggling author. Yeah, we could, I could check it out. I, I could tweet about it. Or at the minimum, put a review on there, whether or not you read it or not. Any press is good press. Do we have any reviews for our No, podcast? we don't have any new reviews. Um, but reminder to of, our Millions listeners, of listeners and no reviews. That's the thing. It's like it's it's all passing through you know verbal reviews that we oh, can't yeah. hear. But the, the reviews that matter, listeners, are the ones that you put on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's how we get more <laughs> listeners. So we actually really appreciate the four people who have turned in reviews. One of them was myself. Oh, oh! So Kiki is key squared. Yeah, oh, the mystery, the mystery is shattered. Yeah. Um, but we would really love to get those reviews. And also, when you do give us a review, we get to read it on air. No matter how cool it is, maybe this could be your claim to fame. If you write a really funny review, and then we get to say your name out loud, and we'll rank how hot you are. Yeah, more stars is just more attractive. Yeah, spoilers. and like, no, I'm not saying that's officially our policy. I'm just saying that science the most, yeah, the most attractive people write the best reviews and give us five stars. It's it's crazy, but it's how science works, and I'm not here to question it. You know, I'm a historian. I'm I'm not a data analyst. On that note, you can find us on Twitter at at the world podcast. You can say whatever you want to us, and we always follow back. Best way to get the updates about the latest episodes. Uh, find us our, on our Facebook page, The World As We Know It podcast, um, on Facebook.com. Pretty easy to find. Don't look for our blog. It's just not worth it yet. It would get better. <laughs> uh, and I guess that's, that's it on our plugs. Thank you all very much for tuning in to another episode of The World As We Know It. You can catch us next week for our next country, Bangladesh. Bangladesh. And in- 
We have to give a very, very special thank you to Tom for being our co-host yeah, thanks, Tom. this week. Yeah, or Thomas. Terry I think it's t- sort of for Thomas. It's too here. late now. <laughs> <laughs> um, big thanks for him for helping out this week. And um, until then, Jojo Tapata. Yeah.